0: from gimlet media i'm alex bloomberg and this is without fail the show where i talk with entrepreneurs artists athletes visionaries of all kinds about their successes and their failures and what they've learned from both we are back last year we did a pilot season of the show to see whether people would like it whether they wanted us to keep going and they did They subscribed, they listened, and so now we will have new episodes three times a month from now till forever. Ask, and you will receive people. So if you haven't subscribed yet, go ahead and sign up. And on our first show back today, I'm talking with one of the hottest directors and showrunners in Hollywood, Sam Esmail, the person behind the hit show Mr. Robot, and most recently the hit series on Amazon, Homecoming, starring Julia Roberts, which was nominated for three Golden Globe Awards, although... It didn't win any of them. Now, people familiar with me or Gimlet, the company I co-founded, which makes this podcast that you're listening to right now and many others, you might remember Homecoming began its life as a Gimlet podcast. And Gimlet was very involved in the making of that show. In fact, I did a whole series of stories on turning the Homecoming podcast into the Homecoming TV show. And the reason I am very excited to talk to Sam Esmail today on Without Fail It goes back to an interview I did for that series. I was interviewing Sam along with the star, Julia Roberts, and there was a moment from that conversation that just stuck with me. It's a moment when Julia was raving about Sam. I mean, I think Sam is incredibly good at understanding people and how we work and what makes people um, as highly creative as they can be and and as highly motivated as they can be. To hear you both talk, it really does sound like you both... It was really this sort of like... Almost instant creative coming together in a weird way. Is that, has that happened before? Is that like was that unusual?
1: Oh, it's. I. I mean, I've done one movie and I've done one television show outside of this, so my experience is limited. But the fact that she and I hit it off so quickly, so early, is practically unheard of. I mean, the first thing we do is like uh, we yell, yeah, we yell each other's <laughs> and then names, we
0: hug, and then we hug. <laughs> it's true every day. Yeah. Listening to them talk, I was struck by how crazy all this must have been for Sam. Like, just three years earlier, before Mr. Robot came out, no one had ever heard of Sam Esmail. And now, here he was, palling around with Julie Roberts, one of the biggest movie stars in history, with a career spanning more than a quarter of a century, like it was nothing. Sam, he's old in Hollywood years, over 40. And he'd been trying to make it as a filmmaker for decades. The very same decades that Julie Roberts had been winning Oscars and setting box office records and becoming the highest paid actress in Hollywood history. What was that like? to struggle for so long and then have his breakthrough be so sudden and happen so relatively late. And so that is what I wanted to talk to him about. And so I invited him to our studios for a conversation. You've had a lot of success now, Mm -hmm. but it was a long time coming.
1: Yes, (laughs) did not have a lot of success (laughs) prior to that, yeah.
0: So I wanna talk about the prior. Yes. And so we did. And it turns out that the prior the long, winding path through multiple failures that led Sam to where he is now is an incredibly fascinating story that goes places that I never expected. It's a story that starts a long time back, in Sam's childhood, with his early love of movies, although not necessarily kid movies.
1: I remember very early on watching—this is going to sound so pretentious, but it's true. It's it's I was watching French Connection. Um, I must have been like five or something, or maybe even younger, four. Four or five watching The French Connection? French, the French Connection. Wow. And I just remember that car chase scene, you know, where it, where it's, they're about to hit the baby carriage and you're just like freaking out. And then the baby carriage has no baby. It's just a bunch of garbage in there. <laughs> and I just, that <laughs> okay. moment specifically st- stuck out to me. And I remember watching that movie pretty obsessively. But it wasn't until... I saw E. T. That I that that's when I started to think about doing it myself.
0: And how old were you at this point? So
1: now I think I'm about eight uh-huh. or maybe seven, and it's the first movie I saw in the theater. My parents were really they didn't understand they had no kind of way to contextualize why I was so obsessed with movies because they weren't they weren't a they weren't American. And B, they grew up in Egypt and they didn't really have movie theaters. So okay. um, So this so, is a completely American phenomenon to them, going to the movies. Yes. Um, and, like, Look and, at our and they thought it was so American expensive yeah. and they didn't, and the yeah. popcorn, and like, they right. just thought the whole thing was ridiculous. Uh-huh.
0: The popcorn is ridiculous, by the way. It is. So I mean, they're, they're not wrong. <laughs> yeah, they're not exactly. wrong. <laughs> <All> <laughs> but right. worth
1: it. Um, <laughs> but they actually didn't go into the movies with me because they didn't want to buy a ticket for themselves. They would buy a ticket just for me and send send me in by myself and then just pick me up later. Uh. Um, and they did that actually throughout. My They never went to the movies with me. They would only just drop me off. But um, when I was seven and they dropped me off to see E.T., the reason why I wanted to go was... I mean, everybody in school was talking about it. Oh, my God, E.T., it was the biggest thing. Uh-huh. And because I was kind of quietly growing this obsession at home with movies, I thought, oh, my God, I'm, this is just going to blow my mind. Uh-huh. And I go in and I watch it, and I am bored beyond belief. Really? Yeah. I mean, it was just sort of this domestic drama about Uh this relationship between this kid and the alien. And I'm like, where are the chase sequences? Where's the action? Where's the fun? And I just didn't have any fun at all. I didn't care about the Reese's Pieces and the the dressing E.T. up as a girl and Uh the frogs in the school. I just didn't care. (laughs) I didn't care. And I walked out and I remember thinking, "I I can do better than that. And... That's that was really. I mean, I'm. I that that's when I wanted. Suck it, Spielberg. <laughs> I know. By the way, Spielberg, you're amazing. I really don't mean to diss on you if you happen to be listening to this. Um, Call <laughs> me. Um, yeah. But actually, in a weird way, you inspired me to be a filmmaker. So <laughs> with your uh, hack boring movie. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's. It, it, I just remember having that feeling like. I could touch that, like I knew that I had specifics on what I liked, uh-huh. what I wanted to experience going to the movies. I kind of knew that I had a voice there, but um, my parents, you know, they didn't want me to be a filmmaker. In fact, I remember when I was in the sixth grade, and um, and they had because you know I was it was very well known in my home that I wanted to be a filmmaker. I used to literally take figurines, like you know. Um, G.I. Joe toys or w- Star Wars toys and create movies, write movies on, uh-huh. on a script and use them and time it out to the 90-minute runtime or the two-hour oh, wow. runtime. So they, they saw my obsession with this and they were worried that this was going to stick. And I remember in sixth grade at the parent-teacher conference they talked to my teacher and they said you know, he wants to be a filmmaker. Can you can you talk to him? Can you convince him not to do this? You know? Right. And I remember my teacher looking at me and she asked me, Is this true? Do do you want to make movies? And and I said, Yeah, that that's that's what I want. And she kind of looked at me and then slowly looked back and said to my parents, he'll grow out of it. And when she said that, I remember getting so angry that I said to myself, I didn't say this out loud, but I said it to myself, now, just because of what you just said, I will be a filmmaker. Like, I will never give up. I will, this is the one thing I will do. Wow. Yeah.
0: That's fascinating. Yeah,
1: so this is kind of, it was a lot of spite (laughs) that got me here. (laughs) Well, I think about this because I feel like spite,
0: there is this element of like, you said I couldn't do it and I'm gonna prove it to you that I could. Right. It's really powerful.
1: Yeah, there's that line. Um, what's the best revenge? Lead a good life. Uh-huh. You because know? <laughs> yes. you, you're right. It's it's more about proving it to them, but then you know behind that is probably something about proving it to yourself. And uh-huh. it, and for whatever reason, it fuels me. So
0: you you know at this age in, in sixth grade, you're vowing I'm gonna I'm gonna yep. prove my teacher wrong. Yep. And indeed, six years later, when Sam graduated from high school, he headed off to New York University, NYU, and its renowned film school. In a nod to his parents who still didn't want him to be a director, he minored in computer science, but majored in film. And in 1998, he graduated. So, this is where, so, so this in the, what, what, um, what I would now expect to happen is so you go get your film degree and then you go off and start making movies. But that's not, in fact, what no. happened. What did, what did you well, do? So,
1: what happened was I graduated, um, my parents didn't pay for my whole tuition, so mm-hmm. I was massively in debt, and I was a computer nerd. So I, so what, what I did was I took a job working at a little internet startup, and I, uh, I was trying to figure out how to get get my first feature off the ground. Right, and um, while I was working at this little internet startup, I became friendly with one of the VCs that funded the startup. And this is, this is 1998, uh-huh. so this is like the internet is exploded onto the scene. I geeked out at every site that would come up, and mm-hmm. um, and I would always talk to my friends about, we should do a startup, we should do an internet startup, because, you know, I was a little arrogant prick and thought <laughs> I could be better than any of the sites that were coming out. Because then I was like, well, if I can, if I could do that, then I can get money and then fund my films. that was really the only reason why I was interested in doing it.
0: So your plan, just to put it, say it out loud, was I'm going to start as a 20 year old, start a super successful company that then I can then flip in an IPO or an acquisition (sighs) that will then fund my dreams of becoming a filmmaker. Yeah. I
1: mean, like I looked at, like I took a page like. Paul Allen, Microsoft. Right. I don't think <laughs> right. he stayed there for very long, but you know, right, he right, became right. a very wealthy guy. Left. No, no, I know. Yeah, it's, and, it's doable, but yeah. it's also
0: like saying, like, my plan is to get into the NBA and get a billion dollars, and then <laughs> right. retire after two years, and then become.
1: I mean, that—that is how. Yeah, that is how arrogant I was. <laughs> I just thought I'll do this little thing to do this other, I guess, <laughs> other crazier thing. You know. So what happened? So at the time, AOL was huge, and and I remember thinking, God, it's so obvious why AOL is beating everyone up, because if you remember, AOL's software to log in was very easy. You put in your username and password, you logged in, it dialed, and then you got in, and you've got mail and here's your buddy list and Uh it's just, everything was right there. Right. if you remember the other ISPs like AT&T or MindSpring or Earthlink or, you know, they had like these real shitty dialers and once you get in there then you had to launch another application for your email or launch another application. So, and so for bas- people who
0: don't remember, this is the, this is how hard it was just to get, check your email back, yeah, exactly. back in the day. Like they hadn't worked anything out. Like right. you could not just log on. And it was just so and obvious to AOL me why was AOL was just yeah. like
1: way ahead of everyone. Uh-huh. So I just thought, well, why not take the software that AOL did, uh-huh. create a, basically the same kind of experience and then license that out to all the ISPs. Right, and internet service providers. Yeah, internet yeah. service providers. So they, they could basically get the benefit of the AOL software, and then we would make the money off the licensing. I pitched that to the VC literally with like a one-page pitch. Style. I didn't know anything, I was yeah. 20. I had no business acumen or anything like that. And he loved it, he gave me $6 million. What? Yeah. What? And But this is, again, I remember this is like the internet boom. So I had $6 million. I was 20.
0: Oh, my God. Yeah, I couldn't even think?
1: legally drink. And um that took over my life for two years.
0: You were one of those 20-year-old, just out of college, Web 1.0 yeah, entrepreneurs. Yes. And what what, what did your days look like back then?
1: Well, the company just took over my life. I was there from, like... You know, seven in the morning until two and two a m. And uh, even when I went home, I was working. and i I just ke- had to keep thinking about what what features can we do? How can we streamline the software development? And I didn't know anything about software development., right. you know <laughs> And so it just was this weird. Pressure cooker for like a couple of years, where I kind of just was thrown into this world, right. having no clue what to do.
0: And what was your title?
1: You were the CEO. I was I was president and CTO, and uh-huh. he he was the CEO. Got the it. investor was. Uh-huh.
0: How many people were working for you?
1: At like at its peak, probably about fifty. Wow. Yeah, but then this is how stupid I was. I did not consider broadband. And then, I mean, it was around two thousand. You didn't consider
0: broadband, meaning like most. Well, once the broadband
1: came out, then why did you need a dialer software to dial into the internet? Nobody dialed into the internet anymore.
0: Right, because you were creating a, a solution for people when they were still connecting over their phones. Exactly. When did you know that it was over?
1: I would say, well, I don't know if there was a if there was a moment, but it was it was a combination of the the business model had shifted a little bit you know and then my, uh, my parents got involved again and really encouraged me to go back to school uh-huh so um i uh, on a whim applied to dartmouth dartmouth's grad school for creative writing uh-huh. and and i get in and i thought to myself well you know uh Maybe maybe this is a time for me to make my exit. Maybe this is this is I'm just not cut out for this. So I had an honest conversation with the investor who I don't not sh- I am pretty sure he wasn't very happy with me uh-huh. uh, for leaving.
0: Tell me about the conversation. What happened?
1: I went to him and I said, "Look, you know my parents are pressuring me. I so I applied to Dartmouth and I got in. I said I'd have to, I'd have to leave and." Two months, so it's kind of short notice <laughs> for the president <laughs> C <CTO> T <to> other <be, laughs> to be leaving, and uh, and he just kind of said okay. He didn't really say much. He said okay. Why do you think he was mad? Because he didn't return any of my calls or emails after that. Oh really? Yeah. Then the company kind of went under and failed, and I'm sure he lost a lot of money, and um, yeah. And you've never spoken to him since. I uh, not for, not out of lack of trying. Ah. I've, I've tried to reach out to him several times. He just doesn't. He doesn't respond. Oh, how does that make you feel? I feel terrible. I mean, it goes back to you know. He gave me a lot of money. He really believed in me, and the people that were working for me really believed in me. And um, and I failed them. I failed them. I didn't. I didn't do a good job. Yeah.
0: I'm also just imagining it from his perspective like he's like he's like this big investor. I'm imag- I don't know who he is, but I'm imagining like sort of like a, a, a an investor type person who's like used to like sort of like taking big bets on these founders and like and like you're in the, in the middle of it with him and then all of a sudden he's like the, the main guy the person he's put the bet on is like I want to take a creative writing <laughs> <laughs> class <laughs> and the semester starts really soon so I got to go. <laughs> That creative writing class, in a surprise to no one, did not put Sam on an immediate path to fame and fortune. There was still lots of prior for him to get through, including one of the lowliest jobs in Hollywood, which is saying a lot. That's coming up after the break. Welcome back to Without Fail and my conversation with Sam Esmail. So when Sam left his tech startup, he wasn't rich. Of the investor's original $6 million, almost all of it had been spent hiring employees, paying for office space, and that kind of thing. Sam hadn't paid himself much of a salary at all. So when he left to pursue a creative writing degree at Dartmouth, he was essentially broke. And after Dartmouth, he went on for more postgraduate studies, this time at the AFI Conservatory, the American Film Institute, the famous film school in Los Angeles. And when he graduated from there in 2004, he found himself in a familiar situation.
1: It was the same thing as graduating from NYU. Uh Broke, now even more in debt, Uh because I still had the debt from NYU. Uh Uh-huh. Now I have debt from AFI. How in debt are you? Could you can you tell uh, me? Yeah, yeah. It, it was close to $200,000. Oh, my God. Yeah. And I also didn't have a job. And I also hate, hated Los Angeles. I still <laughs> do not like Los Angeles. <laughs> do not like living in Los Angeles. Uh-huh. Um, so the first thing I did was get a job. And the job I got was being an editor in porn. And and the reason why I did that was because I became really good friends with my neighbor and my neighbor was a porn producer. So I started editing porn films because oh it was hard getting a gig anywhere. Uh-huh. And so I was in, I was editing porn for a long time, for about a year or so. And then and then I <laughs> made the very kind of like small leap from editing porn to editing reality shows, which is kind of basically the same same thing. If you think about it, <laughs> well,
0: so how old were you at this point?
1: So I was, I was twenty-seven.
0: Twenty-seven, okay. Yeah. And uh, what what's your feeling at that moment? Were you feeling like, all right?
1: the 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 thing that kept coming up for me was, well, this sucks, right? Uh-huh. But what else am I going to do? Am I going to be a a lawyer am I going to be a whatever am I going to switch career? by the way a lot of people from AFI from my year I remember one of my one of my good pals at AFI uh he uh, literally I think maybe two or three years after graduating became a dentist went to school to be a dentist and now he's a dentist mm-hmm. and there is that tricky phase that first three to five years after graduating and where you do have debt, and where you're not making money, and where you're struggling, where you have to sort of consider: Am I in it? Am I going to do this? Am I just going to stay committed or not? You know? Mm-hmm.
0: Did you learn in in this like prior period of like the porn and reality editing? Did you learn anything about the craft of filmmaking from doing that kind of work? No,
1: no, not not at all. Would people critique your cuts?
0: Oh did yeah, you get notes. Oh yeah, like I mean when, so that was like, the, yeah. that was
1: the thing. I would try and do some interesting things and I would always get told don't do that. <gasps> like what? Do you remember a specific? Well, thing? I remember specifically with porn, I would try and stay in in wider shots or 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 do these kind of weird staccato jump cuts to sound editing or whatever and they just stop stop we're not doing that and don't stay in the wide good get up really close the thing is i you know i don't mind watching porn i don't understand these tight shots where you don't see anything it's like to me that's not a turn on and they're like no that's our base they they love that we're doing that so that's the the thinking in their heads was we're not trying to be artful in any way in communicating anything. We are just purely fan service. Right. We are just purely playing for the base because we want their money. It is completely transactional. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no uh, there's no kind of frills about that. And some people are, are like that just in scripted television or scripted right. or feature films, you know? We, no, we do not care about doing something interesting or it is strictly about getting money back. Right. And it's a business to them, you know? It's just purely business. Yeah, no, There's
0: no art to it at correct. all. Correct, correct. And and once you made the jump from porn to reality, did you feel, was there like, was there some sort of incremental
1: sort of progress being made in your mind? Or was it still like, was it just? Some... No, 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 no. These were graveyard shifts. So when I was in reality, I uh, when I, I was going in at 6 p.m. and working until four or five in the morning. Oh, um, this was a grind. This wasn't anything... This was not a learning process. (laughs) This was purely just to pay the rent.
0: The grind continued for several years. And then Sam got what you could call, looked at in exactly the right light, his first break. Something just a little bit better, a small step up. This was in the mid-2000s, and DVD box sets were big. Sam's job was to help edit the extra content that went into these DVD box sets. Things like interviews with directors and filmmakers about the making of classic movies. And after editing those interviews for a while, he got pretty good at it.
1: What ended up happening was I became so good at my job that they ended up making me the post production supervisor. So I had this huge um, promotion with a huge salary bump, uh-huh. like six figures. And so what
0: were you so what were you making before, and what were you making after?
1: I mean, I was probably making like sixty or seventy before, and then after I was I was 100, 110. Oh. oh, Okay, and you know. I don't know, I was probably just turned 30 or 29 or whatever. And I remember thinking, well, this is nice. Like I didn't have to, I mean, I was paycheck to paycheck before. Yeah. This was like, oh, I can kind of relax. And I'm on salary. So it's because as an assistant editor, I was only paid hourly. Right. So when I didn't work, I didn't make money that week. But here it's like, no, I get paid every week, whether I take a few days off or not. And it was it was. Really nice, and by the way, I was working at a great company that really um, I became friendly with all the other employees. And you know, I remember there were like ten year anniversaries and twenty year anniversaries of employees that had been there for ten or twenty years, Uh and that that impressed me and scared me at the same time. You know, (laughs) I I I, I was just like, I don't know how how you could do it. Right, and I'm slightly horrified that you can, but but also incredibly impressed.
0: And but, also, this is better than the graveyard shift. This is, is better than the graveyard court, shift.
1: Right. I could like have a normal life. Yeah. I could have a social life, and um, and it was it was, you know, it, there was a moment that where, where where I was doing this where I said, this this isn't that hard of a job for me anyway, and I'm making good money, and all these people here that have lived their lives there making this money and, and doing the, the job and coming into work every day. And there was that easy conversation in my head of, you could just do this. You could just do this, right? It would have been easy.
0: And I would imagine it's very seductive, especially having gone through the couple of years prior to this. It
1: is such a struggle, such a pain in the ass. And here I am making again, a decent living. And I, you know, I was pretty young to be in that position and, you know, I had so much potential to even make even more money and Uh get more promotions and more vacation days and whatever. I mean, that's what people, you know, you stay five years, you you get four weeks of vacation. (laughs) Yeah. 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 (laughs) Instead of two (laughs) or three or whatever. And so, and I'm like, oh my God. So, and I got, by the way, I had a healthcare, did not have healthcare before then. Mm -hmm. I had like dental, I could like be a real person and go to a doctor. How 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 serious was that conversation in your mind? It wasn't very serious. Right. It occurred to you. It occurred to me. And it, I saw it every day, right? Because yeah. I would see everyone kind of come in and talk about their family vacations and talk about the engagement this person had and the baby that this person had. And it was just like this community that they were developing. And uh, honestly, the very tight-knit community. I mean, I I was... I liked it. It yeah. was nice. Yeah. But it wasn't enough. And I and the reason why I knew that was I'd go home at the end of the day at 6 p.m. And I would write until 2 a.m. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, again, the thought would always occur to me, I could just not do this part. Just Come home at 6 p.m. like everyone else does. I have dinner with whoever. Go out to the movies or whatever. And then go to bed. Yeah. And do this again. Yeah. But I just, just that wasn't enough. (laughs) So then the conversation turned into, "Well, I'm going to do this or, or die trying, and I might fail. Like that's totally within the realm of possibility here because this is the hardest business to get into. But I'm just not going to stop trying. Mm -hmm. And so I thought to myself, I just might end up one of those guys that goes into his, you know, 40s or 50s and is just. Writing on the side, doing little gigs here and there, and just never actually makes it, you know? Mm-hmm. And, but was, that was okay with, I mean, I had to like, I mean, I wasn't like happy about that picture, but I had to be okay with that possibility, you know? Was there a person like that in your life that you knew? Oh, yeah.
0: Who, oh, yeah. I mean, you don't name any names, but like, what, wh- who were the characters in your life that, like, well, oh, there's, oh, that could a, be there's me.
1: one person I know who has a family. Um, he's in his 60s, he has grandkids now, and he, Well, he wanted to be an actor, and he's still doing little community theater things. He doesn't have a job. He gets jobs here and there, but it's really, his wife is really the one that, you know, makes makes the income for the family and just floats from job to job. Yeah. Still goes on auditions, still is an extra in, you know, in movies and, you know, gets excited when that happens, and... Yeah, that's his life. I know, it's, it's funny because there's like this romantic period where like
0: failure is sort of like, oh yeah, that's just, you're on the road to success. And then there's a point at which it turns and you're just, and, and it feel and there's like this point where you're like, maybe you should have given up. Maybe you should have taken the dentist route or something.
1: I guess it just never, that never occurred to me. I guess it just never occurred to me that I would do that because I would, I didn't understand what would be the point. Like, you know, this. Goes you wanted back- to
0: be that guy rather than a successful dentist. Was that what you uh, were-
1: I don't? I wouldn't rather be that guy than a successful dentist. But I know being a successful dentist would always end up with me quitting. And going back, like, you know what I mean? Like, I would always, I would always just leave, like, which was, is what I kept doing. That was my pattern, you know? I, I just knew it was impossible for me to just try, try. Like, it was that guy or bust, basically. Exactly.
0: Coming up, Sam's actual big break, right after our commercial break. Welcome back to Without Fail and my conversation with Mr. Robot creator and Homecoming director, Sam Esmail. So while Sam was working at the post-production place, one of the scripts that he'd been writing in his free time, nights and weekends, attracted some buzz. It got featured on a hot website for unpublished scripts called The Blacklist. Nobody actually acquired that script, but he continued trying. He made an independent feature called Comet, which got released, but that nobody seemed to like that much. It got panned by critics and closed in just a couple of weeks. And then, finally, his actual big break came. He'd been pitching a script that he'd been working on for years, Mr. Robot, Mr. Robot. He'd taken it to most networks in town, and they'd all passed. But then USA Network said, we want to make it. Mr. Robot features a young, troubled hacker named Elliot and a shadowy man who runs an international hacking ring who goes by the moniker Mr. Robot. And when USA picked up the show, that is when the prior finally gave way to the present, when Sam's life started to shift, to feel different from the one he'd been living for the past 37 years. He says the magnitude of the shift, it really struck him during casting for that first season of Mr. Robot. This is early in the process. They have a script, and now they're just looking for actors to play the roles. And Sam remembers being blown away by the caliber of actor that he, Sam Esmail,
1: was getting to choose from. Normally, you know, when, you were, when I was making comment, you're just begging, you're hoping anybody that you see on TV or, or at the movies would be in it. You right. know, you're just like, you know, there's no audition. You're just like hoping that they'd say yes.
0: Who can I get? Because I can't even pay them. Right. Right. Yeah. Right.
1: Here it's like, oh no, you guys are coming in to audition for me and I have to pick. Um, that was, that was very really surreal.
0: I never thought about that, but it is a pretty, almost a complete flipping of the power structure that almost never happens in real life where all, where like literally you're the beggar
1: Yes. And they have all the power. Yes. And then it just like fully flips 180 Folded degrees. Flip. Well, yeah. and it was crazy. Especially the Mr. Robot role. Uh-huh. And because it's older, like guys I grew up watching, uh-huh. including including the guy <laughs> I ended up casting, um was were coming in to to try out for this job, for right. this for this thing I wrote. And they're reading my dialogue.
0: You know, well, that's, Christian that's Slater surreal. Is, I
1: mean, Christian Slater, I he, mean. He's, he got the role, right? He like, got the role, yeah. And
0: like, what was that like to know? Like, because you'd seen him, I'm sure, right? Like, grew oh up watching him?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, look, uh Pump Up the Volume was one of those movies on, on the VHS tape <laughs> that I repeatedly watched until it broke. Um
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> Yeah, that
0: must have been so strange. That's
1: the surrealness, and then you and then by the time you get up on set, it's kind of like things are in. I mean, things are you know that's surreal too because there's a huge company now of 150 mm. people or or so coming together to do this. But um, but I think then you're into the process and it's less about the kind of overwhelming impact of it, more about um, now can I get this right? Because yeah. you know th- that was the other thing that was in the back of my head. What if this doesn't turn out to be good? Right. I mean, do, how many more chances do I get here? You well, know.
0: Yeah, because like the one thing that you had had released your your indie feature Comet, yeah, had like closed within the first month that it opened. Yes, and the, and the reviews weren't.
1: No, the yeah. reviews were not great. I I was not getting any calls after <laughs> that movie got released, and I was I was very concerned, oh. and and so this was kind of like okay, here's my second at bat. Uh And if this was another swing, I didn't know if I was going to get a third at bat. I mean, how many times, you know, how many chances do you get? Right. Right. When did you know that you, you you? when did you know you had a hit? I mean, is it? it? (laughs) I mean, I, you know, (laughs) I mean, you never, I mean, look, I, I do think when we were in the middle of shooting season one and the reviews started kind of pouring in and they were, pretty unanimously good and i was like oh my god okay this is this is a good thing like i was letting Uh, it in yeah and we were filming a scene with with rami and who plays elliot mr robot and frankie who plays shayla Uh uh out on the stoop and in the middle of the shot a cab Rolls in with the ad for Mr. Robot on there. And we had the cut. And I remember thinking, okay, this is like, okay, we're a real show. Like, it's really happening. It ruined the shot. But I got to say, it was like, it was just as one of those surreal moments where I was like, it feels like, it just started to feel like people were talking about the show in the city. Uh And I remember thinking, this is really cool. Like, people started stopping Rami. Uh and and we you know and it started to get crazy and i just felt like that there was was just something in the air that summer the 2015 Uh summer when when mr robot was airing and we were shooting it was just it just yeah it was like it was pretty cool yeah it was like okay i can breathe easy the show's going to be okay right so is your life anxiety free now no, 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 no. no. <laughs> but the anxiety is a good type of anxiety. It's not right. worrying about car insurance. It's worrying about well what's going to be a great, you know, episode of television or what's uh-huh. going to be a great feature, you know. That that that's the kind of anxiety I'm okay with. Is there still anxiety?
0: Is there still that sort of existential anxiety like
1: oh that you could fail? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. But you can't be anxious about it, you know what I mean? Like you just see at the end of the day, I, I the one thing I kind of always go back to whenever I start writing something or think about f- filming something is I have to be a fan of this. It goes back to that five year old kid when I saw French Connection. I want to enjoy this, it has to be enjoyable for me. And if that doesn't work, then, then, then it wasn't, you know, then that's out of my control. Then that's not something I can, you know, sort of negotiate or, or, or manipulate. Right. Like it just, it, it just, if I can stay true to that and if I end up enjoying it, and by the way, that's how I felt about Comet. It did not end up working out, outside of, outside of my, the audience of one, right. which is me. <laughs> but, um, I have to be okay with that and I just have to weather that. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. So what about
0: your, parents like they didn't want you to be a filmmaker how do they feel about it now are they are they are they finally on board with you being a filmmaker
1: no my mom still talks about my cousins who you know they're they're lovely people that one's a doctor Uh and married with three kids and i think one i think they're about to have a grandkid another one's a lawyer yeah and my brother is a lawyer for twitter actually Uh and and he just had his kid and she. That to her is success. She's like, why can't you be more like that? Why can't brother? you be like that? <laughs> this is weird. And I, I, I don't golden get, globe. <laughs> it doesn't matter.
0: <laughs> and that wraps up my conversation with Sam Esmail. Without Fail is hosted by me and produced by Molly Messick and Sarah Platt. It's edited by me and Devin Taylor. Peter Leonard makes this episode, music by Bobby Lord. If you like Without Fail, leave us a review, tell your friends about it,
1: and thanks for listening.